This is Daryl Bloodworth of the Episcopal Church of the Good Shepherd in Maitland, Florida. This is Lesson 6 in our study of the Gospel of John. We're going to pick up today in Chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. After this, there was a festival of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, there is a pool called, in Hebrew, Bethsaida which has five porticos, and these lay many invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am making my way, someone else steps down ahead of me. Jesus said to him, Stand up, take your mat, and walk. At once the man was made well, and he took up his mat and began to walk. Now that day was a Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been cured, It is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your mat. But he answered them, The man who made me well said to me, Take up your mat and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take it up and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had disappeared in the crowd that was there. Later Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Do not sin any more, so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Therefore the Jews started persecuting Jesus because he was doing such things on the Sabbath. Later Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Do not sin any more, so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Therefore, the Jews started persecuting Jesus because he was doing such things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is still working, and I also am working. For this reason, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own father, thereby making himself equal to God. So as chapter 5 opens, Jesus has returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish feasts, although John does not identify which one. This story centers around a pool called Bethesda, which is close to the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem. The sick, blind, and lame would gather there because there was a belief that when the water stirred, it was because an angel stirred it, and the first one in the water would recover from the disease or injury, although not necessarily immediately. Jesus learns of a man there who had been ill for 38 years. John doesn't tell us what the illness was, but it's generally accepted that the man was lame, and that's the reason Jesus, in healing him, tells him to take up his mat and walk. Again, we have a one-on-one conversation between Jesus and an individual, somewhat similar to what we saw with Nicodemus and with the woman at the well. Jesus asked, do you want to be healed? Interestingly, the man doesn't respond to the question. He offers an excuse why he hasn't already been healed. He says he has no one to help him, and someone always beats him to the pool. John records no further questions to him from Jesus to test his faith. He simply orders the man to get up, take up his mat, and walk, whereupon the man does so. 
Note that Jesus doesn't tell the man his faith has made him well, probably because there's no evidence the man had any faith in Jesus at that point. In fact, he didn't even know who Jesus was. Jesus healing the man and telling him to take his mat and walk seems to us like an act of compassion. But there was a problem as far as the Pharisees were concerned. Remember all the rules and regulations they had added to the law given to Moses. Their additions were known as the oral law. One of the prohibitions of the oral law was that one could do no work on the Sabbath. And this day of healing was the Sabbath. So instead of celebrating the healing with the man, the Pharisees accuse him of acting unlawfully by carrying his mat on the Sabbath, which they considered to be impermissible work and therefore sinful. His defense? Well, the man who healed him told him to take up his mat and walk. But this man had not even taken the time to learn the name of the man who healed him, so he couldn't identify Jesus, who was his healer. John tells us that Jesus later found the healed man in the temple, which implies that Jesus went looking for him, and he admonished the man to sin no more, so that nothing worse might happen to him. I gather from this statement, and the man's behavior, that his illness may have resulted from some sinful act by the man although that's not expressly stated. What is clear, however, is that upon Jesus presenting himself to the man and telling him to sin no more, the man goes straight to the Jewish authorities and identifies Jesus as the man who healed him on the Sabbath and then told him to take up his mat and walk. He is apparently trying to provide a defense and say, it wasn't my fault. His behavior seems to confirm the old adage that no good deed goes unpunished. At the very least, it was an ungenerous response by the man toward Jesus who had just healed him. This incident signifies the beginning of strong opposition to Jesus among the Jewish leadership. To them, he had committed two cardinal sins. First, he was flaunting the law with regard to the Sabbath. And second, he was calling God his own father, thereby claiming to be equal to God. Remember that one of John's purposes in writing his gospel was to refute heresies that had arisen. One of those heresies was that Jesus was not divine, but only human. The Jews were correct that Jesus was claiming to be the Son of God, as the remainder of this chapter clearly demonstrates. And they were also correct that this would be blasphemy were it not true. But the possibility that it might be true, they were not even willing to consider. So, to those who contend that Jesus claimed only to be a wise and good teacher and nothing more, Jesus' own words refute that. And his biggest critics never took that position. They acknowledged he claimed divinity. Indeed, that's why they were persecuting him and eventually had him crucified. Let's continue on now with verses 19 through 29. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. The Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and he will show him greater works than these, so that you will be astonished. Indeed, just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whomever he wishes." The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. 
Very truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. Very truly I tell you, the hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not be astonished at this, for the hour is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and will come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. The reasoning of the Jewish leaders was that although healing a lame man appears to be a good and godly thing to do, since it was done on the Sabbath, it could not possibly be from God, for God would never approve of someone violating the Sabbath. Remember, though, that the act in question here was not prohibited in the Ten Commandments, but only in the oral law that the Jews had added to the law over the years. In these verses, Jesus defends what he has done and clearly states that everything he is doing comes directly from God, his Father. He makes claims about himself that would have been outrageous to the Jewish leaders, the rabbis, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. So we'll break down these verses into shorter segments to address the arguments Jesus is making to them. First, in verses 19 and 20, Jesus says he's not acting on his own, but he's only doing what he sees the Father doing. Well, that alone was enough to make them grind their teeth because he says he's the Son of God. The Jews denied that God had a Son in the sense of being of one substance with the Father or being divine just as the Father is. In short, Jesus says, I'm doing what I see my Father doing, including healing on the Sabbath, and I'm doing it out of obedience to him. He also said the Father loves the Son. So Jesus is really telling the Jewish leaders they have the law all wrong if they think it's wrong to show compassion and heal on the Sabbath. The entire foundation of their religion is extreme and minute obedience to the law. And Jesus is telling them God told him to do the very act they believe is a violation of that law. Not only that, he says you will see greater acts than these. We have to recognize it took great courage for Jesus to make such statements in the presence of people that turned out to be his enemies. He well knew they would be inflamed by his statements, and indeed they were. John says they wanted to kill him. Jesus is fearless in making these statements to them. But making such plain statement is exactly what he does. In verses 21 to 23, Jesus points out that just as the Father has the power to raise the dead, so also does he as the Son of God. This statement, I believe, has a twofold meaning. Jesus is referring to being raised from the dead spiritually, as in being born again, as Jesus told Nicodemus. But it also refers to being raised from physical death into eternity. He also addresses another function that is for God alone, judging the living and the dead. He says the Father has delegated the whole function of judging to the Son, and the Son will thereby be honored even as the Father is honored. If these statements were difficult for the Jews to accept, his next statement was even more so. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. 
At this point, the Jews would have been dumbstruck. Let's look at verse 24. Very truly, I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come under judgment, but is passed from death to life. In this verse, Jesus is clarifying uh, his function about being a judge. He says the one who listens to him and believes on him who sent Jesus has eternal life, thereby affirming that eternal life begins not upon physical death, but upon believing in Jesus. The believer is not on his way to judgment, but is passed from death to life. Thus, Jesus says, God has delegated to his Son the power over life itself. He who has the Son has life. Again, this type of reasoning was foreign to the Jews. They believed that keeping the law brought life, but Jesus is saying that life arrives when one believes in him and the Father who sent him. In verses 25 through 29, Jesus makes his strongest claims to being the Messiah. He says, The hour has come when the dead, referring to the spiritually dead, will hear the voice of the Son and live. And he refers to himself as the Son of Man, which was an unmistakable messianic title from the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. The entire function of judging has been given to him, and he will judge each person on the basis of whether the person believed in him or not. Those who have accepted him will pass from death to life, but those who do not accept him will be subject to judgment, resulting in death for all eternity. Let's take a look now at verses 30 through 38. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek to do not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies on my behalf, and I know that his testimony to me is true. You sent messengers to John, and he testified to the truth. Not that I accept such human testimony, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But I have a testimony greater than John's. The works that the Father has given me to complete, the very works that I am doing, testify on my behalf that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified on my behalf. You have never heard his voice or seen his form, and you do not have his word abiding in you because you do not believe him whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that testify on my behalf. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. If another comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe when you accept glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the one who alone is God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom you have set your hope. If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe what he wrote, how will you believe what I say? In verse 30, Jesus returns to the idea that he's doing nothing on his own. In other words, he's not making it up as he goes along. 
He is doing what the Father tells him to do and what he sees the Father doing. So any judgment he makes is based upon what he hears from the Father. Therefore, his judgments are just because they are from the Father. It would be hard for the Jews to argue that God's judgments are not just, but they simply did not believe Jesus was hearing from God. Beginning in verse 31 and going through verse 38, Jesus uses a form of reasoning that was familiar to the rabbis. In essence, the rabbis, Pharisees, and Sadducees were demanding some evidence from Jesus that these extraordinary claims he was making were true. Jesus acknowledges that they don't have to accept any testimony he gives about himself because for a fact to be accepted, it must be testified to by two or more independent witnesses. And this is somewhat comparable to the rules of evidence used in our courts of law today, although under our rules, one is entitled to testify on his own behalf. So Jesus first references the fact that John the Baptist testified as to who Jesus was. So there is one witness. Jesus, though, has testimony greater than John's that supports the claims he's made about himself. He says the works he has performed are evidence as to who he is and prove that he was sent by the Father. Remember what Nicodemus said. We know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus is saying that these signs testify on his behalf that the Father has sent him. So God himself is testifying on Jesus' behalf. Jesus goes on to say that you, the Jewish leaders, do not recognize God's word because you don't believe the Son whom God has sent. In verses 39 through 47, what Jesus says in these verses would have really stung and astounded the Jewish leaders. He says that you search the scriptures to find eternal life, but the very scriptures you search testify that the one to come, the Son of Man, will bring eternal life, yet you've not recognized me. The one who will accuse you for failure to believe is Moses, on whom you have set your hope. Yet it is Moses that is written about me. If you won't believe what Moses said about me, and you profess to believe what Moses said, how will you ever believe the truth of what I have said? In verse 41, Jesus says, He does not accept glory from men. What he's saying is that he's not come seeking their approval and glory. He's come to save them. They, on the other hand, are constantly seeking the approval and glory from one another rather than approval from God. In short, they had not searched the Scriptures for God's will, but had rather come up with their own theology and then searched the Scriptures to support their own views, thereby nullifying the intent of the law God had given them. The law was given to bring righteousness, justice, and compassion to Jewish life. But while God had intended the law for good, they had turned it into a burden upon the people. We'll see all of these arguments presented again in future chapters. It's worth noting, though, that despite the evidence of Jesus' power as revealed in his miraculous acts, most of the Jewish leaders were not convinced by them. They would demand signs, but not believe when the signs were performed. It's a sad but true example of the fact that we humans often believe what we want to believe for our own purposes, even when the truth is right in front of us. 
Even Jesus' resurrection from the dead did not convince many of them that he was from God. The next lesson, we'll pick up chapter 6.